I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Destin, uh, art historian extraordinaire uh, and professor of art history, myself, Justin Bua. Today, we are going to talk about a wonderful painter, uh, one of the great painters of light. Not Thomas Kincaid. Oh, that was <laughs> oh. the bait and switch. <laughs> uh, it was a, a real painter of light, not a painter of uh, what I would... Thomas Kincaid is a little bit more like a painter of frosting, like, you know, cupcakes and frosting light. But a painter who was so good uh, that I grew up on as a child, obviously, because he was also a painter who painted a lot of scenes in New York. I, isn't mystery the best thing? Like I haven't even named everything, and people are like what 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 they say that's the greatest <laughs> way to make things psychologically stick is through mystery, not exposing the answer until the very last. So minute. let's continue that and not say his name, but just give okay. a little bit about his I backstory. Like that. That's good. All right, so this person mm, is this is a game. <laughs> so I'll include. Can you guess it? Can Manny guess it? Do do do. Go ahead. All right, thank you. So he is the second iteration, really, of the Ashcan artists. And we on the show have talked about George Bellows. And this person was taught by Robert Henry. And Robert Henry is the and guy... By the, <laughs> I've never heard Robert Henry. I've heard Robert Henry. Well, he's American. I think it's Henry. I would say Henry. I have never heard that in my whole life. You've you're going he- to Canada, and so you're <laughs> saying everything with the French accent. <laughs> I'm going to Montreal. Let's, let's be real. Like, that's going to be very French. So uh, I'm pretty sure it's Henry, but it's H-E-N-R-I. Yeah. So however you say it. So this guy, Robert, <laughs> he was the leader, essentially, of the Ashcan 8, and he ended up teaching the artists that we're about to talk to, and he was wildly influential to his style. And this person said that Henry just showed him the authentic truth of the American character. And he's not really identified with the Ashcan 8 because he taught a little bit later, but the themes are energetically similar. We have this interest in American psychology and people who are everyday. It's not just the top echelon of society. It is a person who's in a movie theater, somebody getting her hair done or eating at a Chinese restaurant or congregating at a cafe at night. Or just a, a cityscape or a landscape unto exactly. itself, which was very rare for that time. No one was really doing these kind of isolationistic portraits of environments where it feels like the environment is as much a character as any of the character-driven paintings were. So when I was a kid, what struck me about this person's work was that I realized you could do a piece that was unto itself of a cityscape and kind of make it have a personality and give it uh, a breathe life into it with paint strokes. So when you look at one of his paintings, can I mention one of them? And if you sure. don't know who he is by now, you probably can Google it or you will figure it out. And you've seen his work before because his work is very iconic. Uh, early Sunday morning. And in early Sunday morning, right? That's what the painting is called? Yeah, from 1930. 1930, early Sunday morning. It is literally a painting of a city block of 7th Avenue. 
and on the street uh, there is nothing. There's no people. There's no life. And yet the color, the light, the design of the architecture, and the just the the feeling you feel like it has its own life. And a lot of that feels stark and lonely. Uh, at the same time, you you feel like it's so it's it's a very weird thing to say that it, you feel like it's a person because you're anthropomorphizing uh, a cityscape, but you feel like it has an emotional quality that that's why when I did my painting of the block, it was always because I, I know that this this artist allowed me to see the possibilities that you could just do a cityscape or a landscape and make it its own thing without any characters in it, which was so rare. And I think that that's really poetically described because it's true. This artist does breathe a life, a human life into everything that he creates. And that building to me is alive, but it's such a lonely life. Mm -hmm. I feel a quiet stillness. I feel an isolation. I feel that we are devoid of human traces. And so he does anthropomorphize these structures, but in almost this quiet solitude sort of depressing way. And he is a, a kind of a master of, of light, not kind of a master of light. He's a real master of light. He's a master of oil paints in a simple way where he paints things so simply and makes it so easy. This was a guy who wanted to be a painter. His parents were very worried that he wasn't going to make a living, so pushed him into commercial art where he said, I'm going to eschew that reality. And he went off to Paris. He didn't adhere to the the teachings of the salon, the traditional Beaux-Arts salon style. Was enamored with a couple of impressionists, but at the end of the day, you're, 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 you're almost stopping me to enter, but let me just finish this. But let me just finish. Came back to America, landed in Greenwich Village, and never left Greenwich Village. So he became kind of a true blue New Yorker. Uh, but you were going to say what? Yeah, I just think it's interesting, the contact, the point of intersection between this person's work and Impressionism, because he at least said that he was never influenced by the Impressionists. And I think that, as always, we have to take what an artist says with a grain of salt, because there is always an agenda at play. And what was his agenda in saying that he eschewed everything that was European? Of course, it was to focus in on American character and identity, but I do agree that his work exhibits some kind of influence in Impressionism. But we need to say his name. Yes, it's Edward Hopper. Rembrandt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Edward Hopper. <laughs> but but I but going back to Hopper, uh, I think that we can say that Hopper was influenced by the Impressionist simply from an academic side. The Impressionist's main goal was an impression, right? An impression of light, an impression of time, an impression of space. His sensibility of light as an impression was profound. And not, he wasn't painting in a traditional, uh, he was painting though, in a, in a way, in a traditional way where the Impressionists would take out, usually outdoor environments and paint their impressions of them. And he did the same thing, but he did it in the context of the urban jungle, New York City. This was where like concrete reigned supreme. But he was able to paint that with such a beauty and such a sense of mastery with light and light logic that you feel 
like he had to be influenced by the Impressionists. Oh, absolutely. I think a difference, though, is that he never painted on plein air, so the Impressionists were painting that fleeting moment in the outdoors as it passed. And for What do you him, mean he wasn't painting on plein air, though? He, wasn't he didn't sitting- take his canvas out in the streets of New York. He didn't? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, that, I don't know. I, I cannot say for sure, I, I, but maybe. I cannot say for sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I would so. prefer not to, said Bartleby the Scrivener. <laughs> but the I don't. The reason I say that is because to me, there is such an energy of a static world that fe- things feel frozen. And with Hopper, he combines observation and also memory. And so the observation, of course, that would suggest that he was in a place or a similar place to the one that he paints. But then the memory piece comes in. So he wasn't painting in real time. He was painting a really an echo of something that happened to him in the past in real time. Well, that's very deep and very profound. And one thing that you said was his, his painting, like the, it was a frozen period of time. And, and Goethe, the great architect and scientist, said that architecture is frozen music. There's really Ooh. something true about that, that it feels so still, yet you get the sense of, of light and the power of the light streaming across. Like an early Sunday morning, the light that's streaming across the buildings has an energy to it, yet there is such a sense of stillness and solitude with the peace that it's bizarre because you have a you have these conflicting the movement it's not even like you get the typical brushwork movement like a Toulouse-Lautrec where you see the brushwork or a Van Gogh greatest example of like electric brushwork right where it's just all over the place almost psychedelic his brushwork isn't electric but the way that the light streams is moving and it's got a vitality to it and that's juxtaposed with his either his characters or her, his environments, which feel stiff and 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 macabre and sullen and just not moving. And if, in fact, if you look at his characters, bizarrely, they almost feel as if they're carved out of wood and then painted. They look very stiff. And he could really draw well, for sure. He could paint well, for sure. I don't think it was a one of those, he just wasn't good enough. It was like he made a decision to paint his characters in these stiff ways to emphasize the, the, the poetry of his painting. That's such a good point. And also to emphasize the fact that it is a memory because he's not painting the fluidity of life as it happens. The scenes that he is recreating in his mind are scenes that are already dead. And so I think that echoes really the way that he paints the figures because there is a stiffness, there is a solidity to the women are often modeled after his wife, Joe, Josephine Hopper. And all of his figures, though, there's something that's just kind of intractable about them. And I think that's because they are a memory that is no longer vibrant. And so he paints with that vitality, as you say, but what he paints is already gone. And this is a very lonely, depressed person. Oh, Hopper was Hopper was, I think, six six. He was really, really, really tall. In a, in a time when the average guy was not a six six guy. I mean, you were a six six guy. You were playing basketball, but he was a six six guy. He was very depressed until he met Josephine, and she was also a plein air painter. Uh, and and he became a lot more alive, and then realized that 
uh, even though they had a great relationship in many ways, that, like most relationships, he was not satiated with himself because if you don't fill your spirit with, you know, love and tenderness and kindness, you're going to still feel that same vacant, lonely feeling that you can never get rid of, even though you have a partner who's incredible. So she was an incredible partner, but also they had a very uh, deficient sex life, which I think also allowed him to feel lonely and lonelier, perhaps, in, in many ways. So he, was, he had a partner in life, but it wasn't perfect, in other words. And he wasn't able to fill that emptiness and hollowness emotionally. And perhaps that's why he paints. If you look at his paintings, it's not just these are my interpretations of the Depression, He's painting during the Depression years. He's painting dur during, you know, a, a lot of years, obviously. And New York is, is undergoing many things socially, creatively. And he's focusing on the loneliness, which I think in a lot of ways has to be a projection of his own loneliness. And he's living through the architecture and the people of the world he's created. Oh, yeah. And he actually said that his paintings were extensions of a psyche. And so he That's understood intense. the intimacy and this relational dynamic between himself and what he created. And I think what you say about feeling lonely in a partnership is really profound because that is exactly what Nighthawks is all about. His most iconic work, one of the most recognizable paintings in all of American art from 1942. And this is, of course, the scene in an interior of a diner very, very late at night or very early in the morning. And it was painted in 42, immediately after Pearl Harbor. And so I know we've talked about this painting on the show, but it is so important that it really deserves re-mention. And at this time, we're in the thick of World War II, but America had yet been involved. And so now, all of a sudden, there's that fear, there's that terror, because all of a sudden, we are going to be a part of this global conflict in an active way. And I think that shell shock realizes itself on the faces of the people who are inside, who are there grouped together, but who don't interact. The painting is a series of near misses. People almost touch, people almost talk, people almost perform some kind of activity, but yet nothing happens. And so that feeling of being alone in a crowd, there is nothing worse than that. There is nothing more isolating than feeling alone when you're near other people. And so I think that's what I get from that painting. That's what I get from that period in American art. And that's what you're suggesting he also got from his personal life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Growing up in New York City, there's really never a moment where you're alone on the street. You know, and here we have these four characters in a diner and there's nobody on the street. There's nobody in the windows. There's no lights that are on outside. The only light that's illuminating the street is the light from within the diner. And you're right. These are all people who are uh, just not interacting, uh, completely alone. So, like, perhaps they, they each represent a, a soldier of his psyche, right? I don't know. I mean, like, that, that's going deep. But you really feel like, God, this is New York City. And... You barely get that moment where everything is so fucking lonely. And so, like, you just look at it and you're just, I mean, it's a beautiful painting, 
But there's something so depressing about that because you're calling a feeling that we can all relate to of those moments of loneliness where no matter what, no one could fill the emptiness that we all have as human beings it's on some true. level. I know oh. this sounds very Kafka-esque right now, <laughs> and I'm not meaning to get you know existential, but really he's able to capture that in a way that was um, just beyond anybody, and nobody really had, had done that before. Am I wrong to say? Like, I can't think of another artist historically that he's drawn upon like because every other artist is like oh he took what picasso did and he went here with it or he became what monet did and did that or he 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 took caravaggio's you know sense of chiaroscuro and did this or changed the subject matter i don't really see anybody that did anything that hopper ever did ever well, yeah i would agree with that i think that he does derive some of his thematic Choices from other artists, especially the Ashcan artists, he mm. derives some of his techniques from but the, the but the lo but the loneliness. No, like, but that really? is so all, personal. Like if you look at George Bellows, it's like you know, crowds. They're all crowds. Like his whole, his paint or portraits, right? But they're crowds. And if they're landscapes, they're kind of traditional plein air landscapes. Yeah, they might be done with like th you know thicker impasto paints. But at the end of the day, no one has chosen to to not include people in his worlds and when he does it's just fucking depressed and they're they're sitting in in postures their gestures are depressing you ever notice that like oh, when yeah. they're leaning down it's like they feel like oh uh, uh, like you just feel the anxiety oh absolutely it's like a life deflated and it's funny because he rejected that interpretation of his work he said that his work was equally romantic as it was lonely and empty, which I think is funny. And I kind of challenge that through my own interpretation. But to get back to Nighthawks, I not only feel that physical isolation, but also an emotional one. And I see that manifest in the fact that there's no door that's visible to get into the diner. We do see a door in the background, but it's to get from the diner into the kitchen. And so we as a spectator are shut out from the world that Hopper creates. And so we can't get in, and his characters who are inside cannot get out. And the shadows that are cast from the interior onto the street, they almost look like these prison bars. And so I just mm. think that that sense of entrapment is really pervasive throughout the entire canvas. And I think that that has a particular historical reference in this work, but is also ubiquitous in the work of Hopper generally. He, no matter what he did... Uh, he, he wasn't successful initially, and then as he continued his career, he, he got a lot of awards, a lot of a critical acclaim. Museums bought his work during his lifetime. That's a really big deal. And yet, in the spirit of being this lonely guy who didn't really want the spotlight, he didn't care. You know, I, I, this, is, this is at least from what I've read. He really didn't care. It wasn't the, the acclaim didn't make him happy. A lot of people say that fame makes them happy. Most people say fortune makes them happy. But I think with Hopper, he, he didn't, he wasn't able to feel happy. Maybe there was moments of happiness within the dynamic of working. But at the end of the day, I don't really, you know, if, if, if an award doesn't make you happy and if other people recognizing your incredible talents 
don't make you happy, especially a museum, something of that caliber doesn't make you happy, then there's no way to fill that void. Well, sure, because voids can only be autogenously filled. He would have to be fundamentally, foundationally happy as a human in order to feel happiness from these external validations. I think he had his first solo show at MoMA, in 1933. Jesus, that's pretty heavy Which is duty. huge. huge. That, that is the biggest validation from the art world. Absolutely. And so if he didn't feel like that was enough, then that says something about what he was experiencing as a person. And I just think that it is, it is a little bit funny that he saw his work as romantic. And so that just goes to the yeah. point that art is an interpretation that we are all going to bring ourselves and our own set of lived experiences mm. into the viewing interaction with something else. And so maybe he thought that these were these beautiful, quiet, contemplative moments of his marital bliss. And we don't see it that way, but we need perspective and to zoom out in order to really see the whole picture. I got, I have a funny story, which is depressing about Hopper, <laughs> per, a personal story wherein I had like a day to do a painting for a class assignment when I was, this is at a class I took in Amherst uh, up in, uh, you, you know, when I went to Hampshire College uh, for three years before I dropped out and went to Art Center, I went to, I took a bunch of classes at Amherst and I studied with a very high level oil painter and there was like a lot of expectation. So instead of going out and doing a plein air painting, I copied a hopper. Uh, the lighthouse one. And I said, oh, yeah, I just went down and, and copied a hopper. I mean, I went down and painted a, a lighthouse, which was bullshit. And it was such a, probably a very ubiquitous paint, painter amongst painter painters like my teacher was, Professor Sweeney. And he was like, that's a, that's a hopper. And I was like, nope, I did that. And he was like, no, that's a hopper. I was like, absolutely not. And I remember how incredibly embarrassed I was, and I was so attached to the lie. But I couldn't imagine that anyone knew that painting that I took from some random book at a random library up north. And that was like, it was not, you know, it wasn't Nighthawks. It wasn't early Sunday morning. It was just one of his landscapes. That was obviously famous, and I didn't know that at the time. But I plagiarized <laughs> it. I called it my own. I mean, I painted it. I didn't, you know, I, I, I painted it from scratch. It wasn't the days of, like, where you could print it on a canvas and paint on top of it. But I just remember, like, thinking, like, I was so attached to that lie. It was so stupid. It was, like, an absolutely ridiculous, childish thing that I did. But I remember that, that Hopper story where, and then, I, and, then, and then after I thought, what an idiotic thing to do. Like, you're taking a master and you're copying a master. Of course you have an artist of any kind of knowledge and merit. He's going to catch you. Because you're just not doing some rando dude from like showing at the local galleries. This was like a this was a heavy duty master. And even if you don't know that painting stylistically, Hopper is so unique and authentic that people would be like, oh, that's very Hopper-esque. Or because people use Hopper as a verb now. Like, oh, that's Hopper-esque. That's Hopper-like. That's Did Hopper. Really? Yeah. You not heard <laughs> Hopper-esque? Absolutely. Well, the only thing that soda 
to share a personal anecdote. You have a, you have a plagiarized story too? I No, okay. <laughs> but I have a use of the Hopper-esque a little bit. So my family, I have two sets of my family. And whenever I used to travel with my mom, my stepdad, and my sister, and my mom and my sister and I would walk off and we would talk about things or just be the three of us, my stepfather always says in this little sing-songy voice, I'm Edward Hopper all alone. <laughs> Which I just think is kind of funny. So that's sort of a way to <laughs> hopperize the world. But that's very hoponic. <laughs> Hoptastic. Yeah. But I wanted to go back to a, a thing that you said about Nighthawks, and you keep on bringing up New York because we do know as historians that Hopper was influenced by the city and mm. that Nighthawks is a diner that was in New York. And, but- and, and parenthetically speaking, if I may just put this in as a postscript. Everybody does know that painting. If you look it up, you probably know the version where it's like Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, all of the celebrities that are in Nighthawks, and people have done a million billion interpretations of Nighthawks, uh, of Nighthawk, but putting in different people and different celebrities, and it's really interesting, right? Like, there's been a million. It's like the Sistine Chapel, or. Oh, tons of cinematic quotations. So it yeah. was used as a set or it was recreated as a set form in Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin. Okay. Interesting because Steve Martin is a huge collector of Hopper's. Also one wow. of Hopper's general paintings of a facade of a house was so creepy for no discernible reason. It was just a house that it became the inspiration for a Psycho. Yes, in the Bates that's Motel. right. <laughs> but, but, if, but going back to Nighthawks, because you're about to wax poetic about it, but Nighthawks, if you really look it up, you can see not just that one version, which became a huge poster seller, one of the top poster sellers of all time, uh, but many, many, many other interpretations uh, of Nighthawks people have done because it's so iconic to the American landscape. Absolutely. And I'm not going to wax poetical about Nighthawks, but just to make a point or to emphasize a central characteristic of Hopper's work is that even though you're right in a literal sense that it is in New York City, that in a more metaphorical, emotional sense, it could be any city across the country. And that is the point of Hopper, is that there is no specificity to his work. Again, that juxtaposition, that confluence between a lived experience and then a memory of an experience, that it's observation and then it's thought. And so there is something that's very present and focused about his work and very specific. And then there's something that is general and universal. And those two strains align in each of his paintings. And I think that's why he's really hard to identify as an artist who's within a movement because he's not an Ashcan painter. He is not painting just what he sees. He's also painting traces of what happened before. And it isn't that specific in some ways. And so there are just lots of layers and it it almost one part of one of his paintings will invalidate another. And that's what I love, that there are oppositional textures. And thinking about the specificity of Nighthawks, the coffee urns in the back have different levels of coffee. That is such a thoughtful detail that he did not need to put in there. The coffee could have just been full, both urns, but they're not. One level is a little bit lower than the other. And so in that regard, it is so scrutinized. But then in others, we don't really know where we are. And so I think that is a central tenet of who he is and what he paints. And I think that's really all that needs to be said. I think you said it all right there so eloquently. Thank you. All right. So are we done with Hopper? (laughs) We're done. (laughs) Hopper. We we just got got, uh, (laughs) Hoppified. 
<laughs> Thanks, everybody. Peace. <laughs>